Greetings. We're glad to have you back again. What a beautiful song. He touched me and made me whole. Last night we talked about a very important subject, what God has done for us and why we want to give back. He says, you are mine and because we are part, we've been created and redeemed by God. That's why we have come with this phrase, give God your best, he'll take care of the rest. If you weren't here last night, or even if you were, we tried to memorize that short phrase. Would you say it with me briefly? Give God your best, he'll take care of the rest. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that we are yours both by creation and by redemption. Thank you that you have given us this privilege of giving back to you, giving to you our best, knowing you will take care of the rest. Come now, Father, speak through me, that your words may indeed be words of life to each one of us now, in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. There's an interesting phenomenon that it seems to be happening around nowadays. I notice so many places, so many times, I come across things that have that one word, makeover. Miracle makeovers, extreme makeover. In fact, I was at the store not too far away from here recently. When I came across the magazine, I don't subscribe to it, I don't buy it, but I had to get it this time because it tied in closely with my sermon. My sermon is Miracle Makeover, and here they had a on the cover, Makeover Miracles. And it says, shocking photos, Jen Aniston, 1987 and 2005. And inside they have all these pictures of all the so-called celebrities and the so-called Makeover Miracles. Now you'll notice 18 years between these two pictures. Okay? Besides a lot of money and a lot of makeup that took place as well. But there seems to be a big push be, uh, on this issue of makeover. There's a new thing now called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. I happened to read two articles on it. I've never seen it. But the two articles talked about what they do. Approximately a thousand people every day send in letters and videotapes from around the nation trying to show that they qualify for a brand new house. Yes. And so what these people do, they look at them, and once every week, they select ABC television, I believe it is, select a home, and they show up at the door of the family that they've selected. They send the family on a week's vacation. They come in. They tear down the entire house. Yes, in a day or two, they tear it down. And then designers and others come along. One house I was reading about, they had, within seven days, they had 1,000 800 volunteers and they reconstructed the entire house on the same property and then of course they refurnish it and they do all kinds of things at this this house they even gave the owners a brand new motor vehicle and so the people then come back and they're in tears and they're on television of course and this is now another another kind of makeover all kinds of makeovers. I, I've come across a program last year of uh, somebody who feels that their friend is kind of stuck in the dark ages, need a new hairstyle, and then they ambush them, and they call it ambush makeover. Some of you are aware of that. And then they take them and they try to transform them within a couple of hours. It's interesting. I've noticed this. The transformation always includes generally a new hairstyle and invariably quite a bit of makeup 
and invariably low-slung clothing to be more sexually seductive. Those are the makeovers I've, I've seen. Okay, and I don't watch that, but I said, oh, that's the direction that the world is going. Always physical. Ah, always external, it seems. Almost always. Now, there's not just external, there's another kind of makeover that's called re-engineering your body, which is very interesting because medical science, we're here at the medical institution, they're trying to re-engineer people's bodies. They're doing all kinds of fascinating things. I read a story of a man in Japan, he was 58 years of age, he had a rare kind of eye disease, he was going blind. So what did they do? They, the doctors went inside of his cheek, took a small piece of tissue out, and then with stem cells grew this in a culture dish till it grew large enough. Then they transplanted this sheet across his eyes, what they call it, the sheet of tissue, and transplanted it and put a, a soft uh, contact lens over that. Within six weeks, the man could see clearly. A year later, he could still see clearly. Interesting, incredible things that are happening now, transforming the body. You might have heard of bio-artificial kidneys. That's a new thing. There are artificial limbs. The latest one I read about, an artificial hand that is so good. If somebody throws a baseball at you, you can catch it. And you can throw that with an artificial limb. The hand opens and closes so fast, reacting to your thinking. Incredible things that they are now inventing. This is the modern age. All kinds of things are happening. You know, sometimes people don't change. They simply change a name. In fact, it's very interesting. I'm reading how instead of changing perhaps a job, they change the name of it. Listen to this one, by the way. Um, it's called Urban Transportation Specialist. Does anybody know what that is? A bus driver, yes. Or a cab driver. That's the Urban Transportation Specialist. Another one I liked was the Interment Excavation Expert. What is that? A grave digger. Yes. Yes. How about the entropy control engineer? That's the janitor, folks. That's the janitor. Okay? Now that's what we sometimes do. We try to change things. But you see, human beings, though, are fallible. Sometimes even with all this medical attempts to change our bodies, cosmetic surgery, and I know this state, the state of California, is famous for reshaping all parts of the body. Okay? Cosmetic surgery, sometimes, unfortunately, doctors make mistakes. I'm going to show you something right now. There was a lady that went to Australia and she had an operation. You see this scissors, by the way, this pair of scissors? Well, she had an operation in May 2001. She had all kinds of problems. For 17 months, she went back, they x-rayed her, and this is what they found. The doctors had forgotten that pair of scissors, this is an x-ray inside of her. The length of it, 6.7 inches long. Now you're studying medicine, some of you, please be careful. Don't leave anything inside your patients when you operate, okay? Do the best job you can. But you know what's interesting? We all have this dr desperate drive for change. We want to improve. Now sometimes it's medical necessity. We have all kinds of problems. But other times it's just that we're tired of the old. We want to be new. We want to do something new. We want to make ourselves look new. So people spend thousands and thousands of dollars on attempting to change things. But really, 
Can we change? That's the question. Can we really change? Let's go back to our Bibles. The book of Job, Job chapter 14, verse 4. Job 14, verse 4, talks about this. It's a reminder of what we talked about uh, in the last few days. I'm just giving you another verse now to reiterate what we have studied before. Can we really change ourselves ultimately? We're not talking about cosmetic change. We're not talking about uh, euphemistic language, calling ourselves one thing when we're really the same as we were before. Okay? We're talking about real change. Inner change. Job chapter 14 verse 4 asks the question, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And there is a two-word answer. What is it? No one. No one. No one can really bring about serious change. By the way, we talked about, in the past, we talked about Jeremiah 13, verse 23, that says, can a leopard change its spots? Remember that? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? And the answer was no. If you could, then you could do good who are accustomed to evil. That's the verse we looked at before. But here Job says it very clearly. You cannot change yourself. And by, by the way, medical doctors have been involved in trying to rebuild the heart. Interesting. There's a story of a man who is in, in his 50s now, 59 years of age. He had already had a, had a quadruple bypass at the age of 46. Partly, by the way, due to his lifestyle from the evidence. He, can, he called himself a, a genuine type A person since he was in his mid-30s. He has really working too hard, not taking care of his body. Well, he suffered the results. They've been working with him. Now, in his late 50s, his heart, really, his heart muscle was dying. So what are they doing now? New experiments? Medical scientists? Aha! They, give, they gave the man a drug which then be, uh, started the generation of stem cells in his bone marrow. Then they harvested his blood and took out the stem cells there and then they injected that into his heart itself, hoping that this would regenerate his heart, helping to rebuild the heart. All kinds of things the medical scientists are trying to do now to help us to live better. But what does the Bible say? Let's go to... The book of Ezekiel. Can we get really new hearts? We're talking spiritually now. Ezekiel chapter 36. While medical science is trying to rebuild the heart, let's go to Ezekiel 36. Speaking obviously spiritually, you'll see this is the context. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. What does God say? I will give you a new heart. We know it's the word of the Lord because verse 16 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and then verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So God says, I will take out your stony heart and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. Obviously God is speaking not physically, He is speaking spiritually. We know that from the context because verse 27 continues and it helps you to see, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. God is talking about a spiritual heart transplant. By the way, I'll never forget the first physical heart transplant. I was a teenager. Back home, 
living in the city of Cape Town, South Africa. And it just so happened on my 16th birthday. That's why I'll never forget it. The day I turned 16, front page headlines throughout the country. First ever heart transplant. And there was the headlines that Dr. Christian Barnard had performed the first heart transplant into a human being, into Louis Washkansky. Now, he didn't live very long. I believe it was a few weeks before he passed away. But it was the beginning of a major medical breakthrough. And of course, my 16th birthday, I couldn't forget this major medical news. Later on, I had the privilege of working in that very same hospital, Hrutuskir Hospital, where Dr. Barnard had performed the first ever heart transplant. That's not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking really about a spiritual change, a complete radical change. How do I know that? Let's now go and look at the words of Jesus. John chapter 3. Let's go to John chapter 3. And we want to look here at what Jesus talks about as he challenges a Jewish believer about what is most important in his life. John chapter 3. Some of you might know the background to the story. There was a man, John 3 verse 1, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now stop there for a moment. I don't want you to go any further because I want you to, uh, to picture the scene. Here is Jesus, the teacher, Nicodemus says that. And Nicodemus himself is a teacher. So in a sense, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, in a sense, professor and professor. Or theologian to theologian. He says, I know you're a teacher. Nicodemus himself was the ruler of the Jews. Something is interesting. Nicodemus did not say, I know that you are the promised Messiah. He didn't say that. Because he really didn't believe that. He was coming as one teacher to another. And so he's coming here to have a philosophical discussion, apparently. So he starts almost with a flattery of Jesus. But what does Jesus do? Go to the next verse, folks. This is important. Look what Jesus does. Jesus, verse 3. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, or as some Bibles say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, this is serious. Listen, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born again, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus sits there and says, what what do you mean? Look what he does. And almost, almost, Maybe sarcastically or with a little bit of irony in his voice. Verse 4, Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What does Jesus do? He doesn't get into a debate about about physics or anatomy. Look what Jesus says. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, there it is again, Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He is now expanding. Jesus says, you must be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Jesus said, you must be born of the water and born of the what? The Spirit. Okay, let's go on. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Okay, in other words, when you were born as a baby, you were born as a human being. Now he goes further. 
Okay? And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Nicodemus, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. Look at verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you five words. You must be born again. Very clear. Jesus is not going to beat around the bush. Jesus is straight to the heart. He cuts to the chase. He knows what Nicodemus' need is. He's not going to debate and discuss other things. So Jesus goes right to the heart. You must be born again. What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? Let's turn further in the book of John. Go a few chapters down to chapter 16. John chapter 16. And I want to take you to verse 8. John chapter 16 verse 8. What is Jesus speaking about? And again, Jesus here, his words, John 16 verse 8. In the context, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 8, When he has come, when the Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Aha! So the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the heart. Born of the Spirit, in simple language, is what? The Holy Spirit will bring conviction to your heart. He will bring conviction to my heart. When the Holy Spirit comes into my heart, He makes me aware of my problems. He makes me aware of my sins. That's what born of the Spirit is. The Spirit brings conviction. How do I know? Let's give you a practical example. Let's go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And now I'm going to ask you, if you have a pen, if you have a paper, pencil, in your Bibles maybe, I would like to share with you here in a five major point kind of a Bible study. I'm switching now kind of from preaching to Bible study. I would like to share with you now in an actual Bible study. We're going to go five vital points about this whole issue of the new heart, the new birth. We've talked about born of the Spirit. That means the Spirit brings conviction to the heart. And I'm going to show you that right here in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. Notice in verse 36, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be born of, the, of water right here. Acts chapter 2 verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Messiah. Think about that, by the way. The, the Greek word Christos is the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach. This Jesus that you crucified, Peter says, He is the Messiah. Think about that for a moment. He's Jesus. This is Peter preaching to the Jews. And what happens? Verse 37. Notice what the Holy Spirit does to their hearts. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. There's the Holy Spirit working on their hearts. They were cut to the heart. Conviction comes to them. And conviction leads them to desire. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brethren, what shall we do? When the Holy Spirit, when you are born of the Spirit, it brings a recognition that you have a problem, you have a need, you have sinned. And then you will say, what must I do? That's born of the Spirit. Now let's go to born of water. What happens? What does Peter say? Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent. Simply turn around. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ah, there it is. Born of water, 
The Holy Spirit brings conviction on the heart. Born of the water, you are baptized. Now I would like to give you five major points. This is why I suggested you take out your pen, pencil. I would like to do a brief Bible study here this evening to talk about five major important things because we all need a radical, either a revival in our lives or some of us might never have had that new heart that the Lord has promised us. So I want us to look at five major important things. I give you a moment to get a pen and pencil out. And while you do that, I want to tell you quickly about a story. It didn't happen too far from here, up in Northern California, in the town of Dixon. That's where this little baby was. His name was Miles. Two weeks of age. His mother got ill. His baby other older brother got ill. And then little two-week-old Miles, he got ill. Miles Coulton. And eventually he got so ill, they rushed him to the hospital. And from there, they rushed him to a specialist hospital in Sacramento because he was failing fast. What had happened? The two-week-old baby had gotten a virus into the heart. And at two weeks of age, he was suffering from nothing other than heart failure. What to do? They needed a heart transplant. It's very hard to find hearts, by the way. You have to wait months and months to find a new heart. So what they did is they flew in a brand new mechanical heart from Europe called the Berlin Heart. But it was only a temporary device. The, the FDA is right now, it's being examined. They're considering okaying it for use in the United States. But it's still on trial. But they got permission to fly the heart in. And then they attached this artificial heart, which sits outside of the little two-week-old baby, and they were able to keep this baby miles alive while they waited for a new heart. It was four to five months later when another baby died from a head injury, 11 months old, and they got the heart from this infant and they transplanted the heart into baby miles and within a few weeks he was able to go home with his brand new heart heart transplants have become almost routine but there's a difference folks when we talk about the spiritual heart that the lord wants to give us guess what's happening in baby miles's case his body is wanting to reject the heart ironically the heart that is giving him new life is the one that his body is trying to reject and so he will be on these anti-rejection drugs. His parents have almost have to become nurses and doctors themselves to know what to do. They say they have to go through a lot of learning, a lot of training to give their little baby all of the drugs to keep his body from rejecting that heart. Interesting. Is that the way it is in the Christian life? The opposite. When God promises us and offers us a new heart, our body welcomes it. Because we need that heart. That's the heart that we've been needing all along. It's the opposite of the physical heart transplant. This is the kind of heart that our body has been longing for. Because it's the kind of heart that will bring about a complete fresh start in our lives. In fact, there's a statement. Before we start these five points, I want you to see this important statement. I'd like you to memorize it. We're going to review it at the end again. It's a simple statement. To make a new start, give God your whole heart. You want to say that with me? To make a new start, give God your whole heart. There it is. That's a key point. We're going to review that later on. To make a fresh start, to make a new start, give God your whole heart. Here are five important steps that I would like you to take down. The first one is the question, why be baptized? 
I'm going to ask a few questions. When we study in the English language, they always tell you, you must ask five questions. The why, the what, the where, the when, and the how, right? We're going to do exactly that this evening. Very easy to remember. The first question, why be baptized? Why be baptized? We've already mentioned it right there. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? For the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. So baptism is a symbol, is an external uh, symbol of the forgiveness of sin, the washing away of sins. Baptism is symbolic of that cleansing of the Lord of the heart. Baptism, an external symbol of the washing away of sins. Why? That's the why. And incidentally, the question is, when am I ready? This is part of number one. Number one, why? The question is, uh, what, what, what's the steps? How do we get to be ready? You want, you want to put on a little A, B, and C? Because people simply say, oh, you only have to do that. The Bible gives us three things before we actually go through this process. Why be baptized? Oh, it comes after you learn from the scriptures what is biblical truth. Learn, this is little a, one a, you learn from the Bible what is truth. How do I know that? The very story we're reading. If you have your Bible in front of you, go to Acts chapter 2 again. And I want you to notice from verse 14 all the way through to verse 35, Peter is preaching this incredible sermon. And who, what is Peter doing? He is doing a study of the Bible. In fact, in verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He's quoting the prophet Joel. He continues, verse 25, For David says concerning him, and he quotes David, Peter is doing what we might call an old-fashioned Bible study. He is teaching the people from the Bible. You first learn from the Bible. A, little a. Let's go to little b. What happens after you learn? Then you get to where these people say, What must we do? And Peter says, Repent. So that's little b. You repent, turn away from your sins. First you learn, then you repent. Okay? Why do you repent? Only because you've accepted these truths. I switched those two around, those last two. I'm sorry about that. First, you, of course, you, uh, you learn, you believe and accept, and then you repent. You learn, you believe and accept, and then you repent. And they believed, and they accepted. That's why they said, what must we do? And then they did repent. Why must you be baptized? To have your sins forgiven. Now I know, when you look at the story on the surface, it looks like right away, they said, we repent, we accept, and they were baptized. And I'll tell you frankly, I know of somebody, a friend of mine, by the way, I bumped into him not long ago, He's a, he's a pastor, and he said, as soon as people accept Jesus, I'm going to baptize them. Because when we look at the story, such as this one, it shows that immediately they were baptized. Hmm, when should people be baptized? That's the second major question. The first one was, why? Why? For the forgiveness of sins. When? What point in time in their lives? Because when you look at the story on the surface, it looks like they were baptized immediately that very day. Now, yes, they were. They were baptized. But why were they baptized so soon? Why does it take some people a long time? Incidentally, I met a gentleman from the Philippines one day. And he told me, he said, we studied the Bible for one full year before we were baptized. Now you ask the question, it doesn't make sense. These people were baptized the same day. This gentleman from the Philippines studied for a whole year. 
What's the difference? Ah, very crucial. I want to take you on a quick journey here to show you why these people in the book of Acts were baptized the same day. But you have to go with me on this quick journey. Go with me to John chapter 1, verse 19. We have to give you the background. John chapter 1, verse 19. Why can some people be baptized immediately? And why do some have to study for a whole year? Remember, the why of baptism? Forgiveness of sins. Now we come to the actual when, specifically when. John chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Verse 20. But he confessed and, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. Go to verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go to verse 45. I'm giving you these verses, and I'll put them all together in a minute. Look at verse 45. Because Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Down to verse 49. Nathanael answered and said to him, to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Why have I taken you on this journey? I'll tell you specifically why. Think for a moment about the Jews who were living at that point in time. The day that preacher was preaching, the Jews, if you study the Bible carefully, those Jews already were people who kept the Decalogue. They were faithful and obedient to the Ten Commandments. We know that from the context. Number two, they were a worshipping community. They worshipped regularly. In fact, that's why they had come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Because they were coming up there to worship God. The Jews were expected, were required to do that. They were a worshipping community. They were an obedient community. They were a tithe-returning community. We know that from the Bible. They were faithful in giving their tithe. In fact, they went so far as to give tithe on the little herbs that grew in their backyard, mint, dill, and cumin. They were very meticulous, sometimes almost too meticulous. Jesus said they should tithe those little things, but they shouldn't forget the weightier matters of the law. They were tithe returners. They were giving their offerings. Yes, sometimes too boastfully as the Pharisee. Look what a good guy I am. But they were giving, even the publican was giving his offering. They were offering and tithe givers. And more than that, they were health reformers, if you want to use that term here in this context. They lived healthfully. They ate certain foods. The Jews already were practicing virtually everything. There was one belief that they didn't know. One major concept that they were needing to learn. And what was that? For centuries, the Jews were looking for, longing for, waiting for, watching for the coming of whom? The Messiah. The Messiah. And when this person called Jesus of Nazareth was born, only some of them recognized Him as the Messiah. Remember Peter in Matthew 16, verse 16, where he says, You are the Christ. That's the Greek, the Christos. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Remember that? And when Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9, it's interesting. There it says, Paul went out and preached that this Jesus was the Messiah. The key issue, my brother, my sister, was that the Jews already believed and practiced everything except one belief. And that was what? 
they had not recognized that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. Which is why when Peter biblically proved that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had been crucified, in fact, Peter says, you were guilty of crucifying him. He just said that in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, 36, 37. That's when they realized we have killed the promised Messiah. And that's when they accepted him as the Messiah. This was the one truth that they didn't know. Sometimes, sometimes it happens. You come across somebody who accepts and understands everything and there's just one belief they don't know. You share it with them and they say, wonderful, I've been waiting for, for some good news to fill that void in my life. Now I know I'm ready. They are ready, you see. In fact, I had a case that somebody brought to me and I sat down with this young lady and I listened. She was not a practicing member of, of our faith, but we, we looked through the issues, studied them. And within three or four hours, it became crystal clear. She believed and practiced everything that we believe. It was an amazing case. She had actually been studying and growing. She was already practicing. Well, there was not much left to do. She was ready. <laughs> and she accepted. And then she came. And I had the privilege of baptizing her. That very, within a week. Amazing. She's a member now of my church. You have to see when people are ready. And so when you study the Bible, you find out the when comes very clearly. So why people must be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? When? Whenever they are ready. And different people are ready at different times. These people in the book of Acts, they were ready because there was one belief that they didn't have and that is they didn't realize that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. That's why they could be baptized immediately. There are other folks that it might take five years before they can unlearn all of the things they, they have grown up with. Others might take less time. So that's the when. Let's go to the third question and I'm glad you're taking some notes there. What is baptism? The third question. The first one was the why the second one was the when. Now we go to the question, what is baptism? Let's go to a little deeper digging now. We have to go to Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And uh, there's a little uh, introduction to Romans 6, verse 4, which is in chapter 6, verse 3. But Romans 6, verse 4 is the verse I want us to focus on here. Verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Now, here's verse 4. Romans 6 verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Interesting. Paul here, by inspiration, is saying, what really is baptism? Now, we know it's the forgiveness of sins. Okay, That's why we should be baptized. We know when, when we are ready. But the deeper significance, what does it really symbolize? And under question number three, again, I have a little a, little b, little c. A, b, and c. When we look at this verse more closely, the first thing that baptism is a... Uh, reminds us of is of the burial of Jesus. Okay, so baptism is being buried. There it says in the text, we were baptized with him through baptism. We were buried with him through baptism into his death. Or as another translation puts it, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Baptism symbolizes a burial. 
Okay? A burial of what? Of the old person. There it is. The burial. Little b. The second point, it says, and you were just as Christ was raised from the dead. Aha! So baptism is burial. Little a. Little b. It is resurrection. Right? That's the second part. And little c. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. That's the third aspect here. Once you are, you die, you're buried, you are resurrected, and then you walk in newness of life. The deeper significance of baptism. Very interesting. Think about this for a moment. According to Paul, how should we celebrate, commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Through what symbol? Through the symbol of baptism. Baptism for the Christian is the biblical method to commemorate, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fascinating. The study here is interesting. The baptism shows the death, burial, and resurrection and walking with Him in newness of life. That's the what of baptism. Let's move on now. How? How should we be baptized? Because there has been debates for centuries about this. In fact, an entire denomination was started centuries ago because this group of people believed that they needed to make a personal choice to be baptized, even though when they were babies, they were uh, sprinkled when they were babies. And they started a new denomination called the Anabaptists centuries ago. Okay, so now let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and let's look at the method. Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 4 and 4 and 5 talk about how. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Here Paul is very specific, talking about what method does God call upon us. He, he says how many they are, then we'll go for examples in a few minutes and we'll look at this more deeply. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, what does it say? One baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. One baptism? Well, let's go back to the example of Jesus. We always want to see what Jesus teaches us through his life and ministry. Mark chapter 1. Let's go to that second gospel writer, Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Now already I know there might be one or two of you or more saying, wait a minute, pastor, I thought you said that baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. And my Bible says that Jesus never sinned. And I know those questions will come up, so let's address that as well, okay? Mark chapter 1 does say, verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth, of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Wait a minute. I thought baptism was for forgiveness of sins. Hold on. Keep your hand there. I'm going to take you quickly on a tangent to Matthew chapter 3 because Matthew fills in the rest of the story. Matthew chapter 3 and we'll come right back to Mark chapter 1 in a minute. Matthew chapter 3. Here's the story again. It says it again. Matthew chapter 3 verse 13. Almost the same words. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. We just read that, correct? Okay, verse 13. Now verse 14. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? John recognized he was the sinner. Jesus is not the sinner. And Jesus says in verse 15, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. As you study the whole Bible, you see that Jesus was baptized not to forgive us of his sins, 
but rather he was setting an example for us. It was the beginning of his ministry, and Jesus, even though he was sinless, he still went through the rite of baptism. Jesus sets an example for us, folks. Let's go now to Mark chapter 1, verse 10, continuing the story. So here Jesus comes to John. He is going to be baptized. Verse 10, Mark 1, verse 10. And immediately coming up from the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So it's very clear. Jesus went down into the water and he came up out of the water. John chapter 3 verse 23 even fills out the picture a little more. So turn with me now to John, the gospel written by that beloved disciple, John chapter 3, back to the same chapter we were at before. John chapter 3 verse 23. Again talking about John the baptizer here, written by John the beloved John the Baptizer, this is a story by John the Beloved about John the Baptizer. Verse 23, Now John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. Interesting. The reason there is a lot of water, you need a lot of water if you're going to immerse somebody. And incidentally, I like to be current. So nowadays I check the website, I get current stories before I get up here to preach. And today I went and checked my Greek dictionary. I said, I remember this, but I better go and check to make sure I'm giving people correct information. And I went and checked. Guess what the Greek word baptizo means? I wrote it down to dip or immerse in water. That's what it is. Baptized to dip or immerse. Going right underneath the water. So that's the how of baptism. We've looked at the why. Forgiveness of sins, right? The when. Whenever people are ready. When they have heard the message. When they have accepted and believed it. When they have repented. That's the when, right? We talked about the, the what. It's a symbol here of the death, burial and resurrection of, of Jesus. We've talked about the, the, the how that is by immersion. And finally, the fifth and final point, I use the word where. Where? Now you're saying, Pastor, what do you mean where? Must it be in a river or, or in a bap? No, no. Where meaning, you see, because I have come across very sincere people who say, Pastor, I don't want to be part of a church. I want to simply be baptized into Jesus Christ. That's why I'm asking the where. What does the where mean? Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, where we were earlier on. That important Pentecostal sermon, Acts chapter 2. What happens? Does the Bible teach you should be baptized only into Christ? Or what is this, the church business? Why do we encourage and challenge people when you are baptized into Christ? You really should join a Bible-believing fellowship of Christians. Is that biblical? Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 and notice verse 41. Now, Peter had already said, repent and be baptized. Look at verse 41 now. What happened? Yes. Then those who gladly received his word. By the way, there are some who don't gladly receive it. They turn away. <laughs> those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And go down to verse 47 to finish that chapter. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Now notice that last sentence. And the Lord added to what? To the church. Daily, those who are being saved. As you study the Bible carefully, you will find out to be baptized into Christ 
means that you do join His church. You cannot be baptized and simply be out there alone on your own. Let me give you one more example. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Our last passage will go to the book of Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 12, 13, and 14. We're going to look at it a little more in depth next week. The gifts of the Spirit. But here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is very clear, very specific. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and verse 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into what? Into one body. Now you're saying, what body are we talking about here? You might want to just remember, if you have a chance, write it in. Ephesians 5 verse 23 says, Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. So go down now to verse 27 to give, to finish off here. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. In a nutshell, folks, where, when, Anybody is baptized into Christ, you automatically become a part of the body of Christ, the church. You cannot be baptized as an individual and simply be out there. You become part, you join a Bible-believing community. It is very important. Five very important factors about how, where, when, why, and what about this whole issue of becoming a new person. I want to share with you an interesting story. It happened exactly four weeks ago to this very day. It was on a Wednesday, January 25, 2006, on the other side of the ocean in the old country, or the mother country as some call it, Britain, the UK. A tourist was there going through one of these museums. Unfortunately, unintentionally apparently, he had his shoelace had come loose. And as it so happened, he tr- slipped and tripped on his shoelace, unfortunately, at the top of a flight of stairs. He started tumbling, going down those stairs. And in a desperate attempt to stop himself, he grabbed, he reached out. And he bumped two vases. They were actually vases, my friends. (laughs) They came from ancient China. From the Qing dynasty. 300 years old. And in his desperate attempt to save himself, he shattered those two 300-year-old priceless Vases, or vases rather. When he landed at the bottom of the stairs, he wasn't too badly injured. He was able to pick himself up and leave. And they let him go. They didn't even reveal his name. But those vases were shattered into, and I'm quoting now, very, very small pieces. Very, very small pieces. The museum is hoping to piece together those shattered vases. But you know what? They can never reconstruct them to the way they were before. It's impossible. 
There is only one way it can be done. If that original potter were there, he could make brand new vases. My Bible talks about God as the divine potter. Doesn't he? Doesn't the Bible? It is only God who can shape, form, make brand new hearts to put them in us. He can reshape and reform us into beautiful vases to reflect His glory. Your life, my life, may be to some degree shattered like those pieces just four weeks ago. I don't know when you might have had tragedy strike you. Sometimes in the form of a death in the family. Sometimes, friends, in the form of Decisions that others have made, their own carelessness, like this tourist. Careless, as a result of his carelessness, he shattered those beautiful vases. Sometimes other people's carelessness has a tremendously negative impact on your life and on my life. And we feel like we are broken to pieces. Now, admittedly, sometimes it's our own choices. Isn't that true? We are messed up because we have made bad, bad choices. And our lives are broken to pieces, shattered. But there is only one way that we can be remade. And that is if we will allow the original divine potter to reshape us, us and our lives into brand new vases or vases. You want to be remade? You want to be remolded? Then like David, we should say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I know this evening's message is a vital one. I don't know where you are in your life. I have no idea. You know where you are. You know how the Spirit is working on your heart right now. There are some of us that might need to give our lives to the Lord for the first time, saying, Lord, put in me this heart of flesh. Wash me whiter than snow. There are others of us, we might have drifted away. We might have been careless like this tourist. We might need to have a genuine revival that God needs to bring back brand new life in our lives. I don't know where you are. And so today, I'm going to recommend that each one of us prayerfully participate in the singing of a beautiful hymn we'd like to put up for you here on the screen. It's called Whiter Than Snow. Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want Thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol. Cast out every foe. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow? Yes, whiter than snow. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We're going to invite you to stand and sing with us this beautiful hymn. Thank you, Lord, for being good to us. Thank you for offering us a new heart, a new spirit that you will put within us. We want to praise you for being so gracious, so loving, so long-suffering toward us. Today, Lord, several have come forward as a public recommitment, saying, Lord, revive in me, put within me that new heart that I need. Thank you, Lord, for those who've made this public recommitment to Jesus Christ. Bless every one of us now in the precious name of our Savior, our soon-coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.